live from Liverpool, the Dark Paranormal, Season 5. Hello once more and welcome back to The Dark Paranormal with me, Kevin Eustace. I'd firstly like to say thank you to everyone who reached out following last week's episode, The Devil's Lake. I don't believe in all of our episodes there's been as much interest in where the location was. But, unfortunately, I can't divulge where exactly that took place. Such is the request of the author of the story. However, I strongly imagine that guest house bookings in the Snowdonia region have gone up in the last week. And I like to think that somewhere out there in North Wales, there's a guest house owner who's a little bit stumped as to why they're being inundated with booking requests. If you have a story which you think would suit the dark paranormal, then please email it in to the dark paranormal at hotmail.com and I'd like to thank everyone who's reached out so far for this new season indeed the true paranormal experience that we'll take a look at today has came in from a brand new listener someone who only began listening to the show after Halloween this year and not only do we initially hear about a very interesting take on what ghosts may be we also hear how that perception can change as your circumstances in life change. And I will say there are certain aspects of the story that we're about to look at that have stuck with me since I read this email several weeks ago. And for full disclosure, not only am I looking forward to reading this email out, I'm also recording this on a very dark and stormy night here in Liverpool. I've got the lights turned down low, and the wind is literally buffeting off the windows as I speak. Hopefully that won't come through in the recording, but if it does, it may just add to the atmosphere. But before we dive headlong into today's true paranormal experience, if you're listening to the show right now, and you look forward to the show coming out each and every week, then are you willing to support the show via Patreon? Of course, the standard feed will always be free, and that's entirely thanks to the club over there. When someone signs up to support via Patreon, not only do you keep the show going, you also get a weekly episode only for Patreons called Dark Bites. Also, you receive these episodes before anybody else, and they will always be ad-free. And of course, you get a thank you on the show, just like these wonderful people who've signed up this week. Alice Blue Moon, Stephen Thomas, Paul Greer, Amy Andrews, Ken Jennings, Jackie, Chrissy Ryan, Chris Stark, Emily Gibson, Michelle Fouché, Liz, H. Fox, and Simon Tasker. Thank you so much, guys. I hope you enjoy the Patreon-only content and, of course, the early releases too. So if you'd like to sign up, head over to patreon.com forward slash thedarkparanormal. And now... Just as the dark, wintry wind and rain close in on me, make yourself comfortable, lower the lights, and join me for a honeymoon in hell. So, first and foremost, I should say I was a weird kid. 
I also looked your atypical weird kid. Nothing to do with my parents. If anything, they were always trying to dress me up in whatever in-trend was happening at the time. But no, if this six-year-old wanted denim dungarees, then she was getting denim dungarees. My parents always said I was much older than my years. A case in point, one birthday, they wanted to buy me the latest coat that all of my school friends were wearing. However, when we got to the store, I touched the flimsy material and declared, this coat will never keep me warm in winter. And so we left the store with a much more practical and highly unflattering Parker coat complete with the tunnel orange fur-lined hood. Thankfully, my apparent odd personality didn't ostracise me from the other girls in class, and I still developed a close group of friends who I'm still like sisters with today. Although I'm still not totally convinced they don't keep me around just to be the weird one. I joke. I hope. Another thing that turned out to be unique to myself was the fact... Well, I saw the dead. That probably sounds dramatic, and I guess it is. I don't mean corpses or horrific bodies covered in blood, rotting flesh. No, these were everyday people. One thing I don't think's presented very well in reenactments or the movies is just how run-of-the-mill ghosts are. They're easy to spot, too. In fact, the place I'd see the most ghosts as a child was not a graveyard, nor a spooky old church. No, the place I would see the majority of my ghosts would be at the supermarket car park. Mum would give me the choice of going in the shop with her or sitting with my magazine in the car. And nine times out of ten, she'd crack a window and I'd wave her off. It was really simple to spot them. You look for a person, or a couple, or a family, who has someone following them. They would normally trail about four feet behind and be a sort of dimmer colour than everyone else. Sometimes it would be difficult to know for sure, but there were some signs to look out for. First, like I say, the colour is slightly off just not quite right. They also don't seem to speak. They listen intently. They smile or frown at what's taking place four feet in front of them, but they never interact. Also, the people they follow never acknowledge them either. You could definitely mistake them for a normal person, except for the ones following people who get into cars because they would stand and watch the family get in and drive off, and they would then slowly fade away. I used to like to imagine that they would materialise back home and wait for them. I don't know. Unlike in the movies, though, none of them ever noticed nor acknowledged me. I think that's why I was never scared. I'd occasionally walk within inches of one, but they would always be far too busy with whoever they were following. Yep, for all the ghosts I used to see, not one ever interacted with me. Until I got married. 
my ghost-seeing ability, if we could call it such a thing, began to wear off as I got older, and by university it wasn't even a thing. I would occasionally do a sweep of a busy area to see if I still had it, but apparently it left with my youth and my carefree attitude to what people thought of me. Being an adult is tough. Don't believe anyone who tells you differently. Sure, there are amazing times that make everything worthwhile, but it's a tough slog. It turns out a non-conformist personality does not have the quirky appeal that it does as a child. And to just exist, I ended up losing part of myself and my belief system just so I could fit in at uni. Thankfully, I could still be myself with my friends at home, but I really started to resent term time. Until I met Keith. I met Keith one night at the student bar, and we just hit it off. Without wanting to sound too cheesy, it felt like he could see the real me. He could look through this persona that I'd created for university and pull out the nerd in dungarees and a parka coat, and I was smitten right away. We didn't date straight away. In fact, our first date didn't happen until a few months after graduation. Keith asked me to go to an Italian restaurant, A Taste of Tuscany, but I became very ill with food poisoning on the afternoon of the date, and so I had to text him to cancel. However, he was adamant the date would go ahead, and so he instead spent the evening holding my hair back as I vomited and brought me plenty of water. I thought I'd blew it. But part of me said, well, if he sticks around after seeing you like this, you'll be okay. And I was, because he did. Two years later, and we were married. Keith kept our honeymoon destination a secret. But, fittingly, he'd arranged for a real taste of Tuscany and a week in a villa just outside of Florence, Italy. The villa was everything you could imagine a turn-of-the-century Italian villa to be. Rustic but stately. Intricately carved marble and stone opposed the weather-worn wooden shutters either side of the windows. And that was just the outside. Inside, Keith jogged upstairs with our bags whilst I took in the beautifully tiled hall that ran in between the front and back doors. To the right was a grand sweeping staircase which curled back on itself to reach the upper floor. Vases of fresh flowers were dotted around the place, giving it all a picturesque, I really shouldn't touch anything, vibe. I walked to look into the back garden, which was small by comparison, but sported an outdoor pool of light blue tiling. Yes, this was... I jumped and spun around. Someone had just ran straight up to my back. But there was no one there. They sounded like little feet, bare feet slapping on the tile. I glanced quickly and caught a small smudge disappear as if a footprint had evaporated. Surely it wasn't. Bags are away, shouted Keith, startling me as he came down the staircase. Oh, oh good, I forced a smile back. We set out into Florence shortly after booking tickets for the rest of the week. 
I wanted to see so many things. Michelangelo's David being top of the list. Sadly, not long after we arrived, the weather took a turn for the worst, and so we decided we would get some local items and spend the first night in the villa. The forecast said the weather would be great from tomorrow, so we could go out on other nights then for dinner. As we walked up to the door of the villa, Keith peered through the window. There's bloody kids trying to get in, he said, and darted around the back. It was all a bit of a blur. But sure enough, from the side of the house, three young lads burst out, Keith falling through the bushes in hot pursuit. He grabbed one of them by the arm, which caused the other two boys to stop also. Police, shouted Keith angrily, I think more out of embarrassment due to his stumble. I'm phoning the police. No, cried out the boy that Keith held, and he kept shouting and pointing at the house. Casa de Fantasmi! Casa de Fantasmi! A taller boy who spoke better English said, We were not stealing, we just looked through the window. Why? asked Keith. What are you looking for? It's a ghost house, said the boy. Casa de Fantasmi! Bad things happen in the house. One of the boys began crying and Keith let go and sent them on their way. Stupid kids, said Keith, regaining his composure and turning the key in the lock. But, especially with both my past and what I'd heard in the hallway earlier, I knew in my gut that these boys were right. Something was here with us. And unlike anything I'd experienced before, I knew it was aware of us. We entered the hallway and took off our coats. I took that night's dinner into the kitchen area, which seemed rather cold, but kitchens in old houses like this are always cold, I've found. I began putting things in cupboards when... Bloody kids! Keith shouted from the hall. Running out, I found him picking up items of his clothing from the staircase. They must have got in and started to trash the place before we scared them off, he muttered to himself as he picked up the strewn garments. Going upstairs and into the bedroom, it was hard to argue the fact that Keith's clothes had been launched around the upper floor. Socks in the toilet, shirts screwed in a bowl and on top of wardrobes, shoes in the bathtub. Yet... Not one single item of mine had been touched, despite the fact, in the case of the shirts at least, some of my items were intermingled with his. It seemed, well, targeted. I'm calling the police for sure this time, he said. I tried to stop him, but he was adamant. And whilst he was on the phone, I became less convinced it was the boys and more convinced it was whatever was in this house. There was no forced entry, no obvious route in or out. The police arrived shortly after, and after establishing nothing was taken, and there was no damage to the property, they were about to leave. But I couldn't help myself. I reached out and tapped one of the officers on the arm as he walked past. Yes? he asked. I apologised and said, the boys kept saying, Casa de Fantasmi. I shrugged as if to posit it as a question. Ah, said the officer smiling, a ghost house. 
it's meant to be a haunted house. Far from returning the smile, I found myself asking quite abruptly, And is it? Let's have a quick break to talk to you about Policy Genius. Now, we all like to put off life insurance talk because it reminds us of our mortality. But life insurance isn't about death, it's about life. It's about ensuring the lives of those you love remain secure and comfortable. And I'm sure many of you will think, well, I'm covered through work or I'm covered through my bank account. But believe me, you want to check those finer details because you may be surprised what you're actually covered for. And this is exactly where Policy Genius come into their own. Yes, we could talk about how Policy Genius is America's leading online insurance marketplace or how their award-winning agents will walk you step by step through the entire process. But the best thing about Policy Genius for me is they don't have a dog in the fight. They're not going to strong arm you towards one company or another. They've no incentive to do so. Their only incentive is to listen to your needs, scour America's top companies and find you the best price. For example, with Policy Genius, you can find life insurance policies that begin at just $292 per year for $1 million of coverage. Some options even offer same-day approval and avoid unnecessary medical exams. There's a reason why Policy Genius has thousands of five-star reviews on Google and Trustpilot, and you'll find out what it is when you tick life insurance off your to-do list with Policy Genius. So head over to policygenius.com or click the link in the description to get your free life insurance quotes and see how much you can save. That's policygenius.com. The officer's smile dropped somewhat and he tilted his head from side to side. Well, so some say. There was a crime here years ago and, well, boys are boys. And with that, they politely gave their goodbyes. The rest of the evening, I just could not settle. You don't really believe it's haunted, do you? Keith asked. I just chewed on my fingernail and stared at him. Yes, actually I do. Keith let out a sigh. Come on, he said, leaning forward and pouring more wine into my glass, emptying the bottle. You just need to unwind. Ah, I left the wine in the car. He picked up his car keys and walked out. I decided to go upstairs and swill my face with cold water. Keith's right, I thought as I entered the bathroom. I just need to... There was a sound from the attic that sounded like beads dropping on the floorboards. Just once, but enough to make me freeze and hold my breath. Staying as silent as I could, in case the... Amy! Keith shouted from downstairs. I ran to the landing. What's the matter? I shouted back. Keith was stood with a bottle of wine. He looked both puzzled and shocked. Come here, he said in a low voice. Look at that. He nodded over to the kitchen. Did you do that? I looked over and a chill ran down my back. The four chairs which had been placed neatly under the kitchen table were now on top of the table, stacked in two lots of two, one upside down on top of the other. No, I went the bathroom. No, I'm freaking out now, said Keith, and this was not how Keith reacted to anything, ever. What is it? I asked, rubbing his arm. Keith had his hand to his mouth, rubbing his chin and staring outside. He retraced his steps, I came in from the car, he said, pointing at the front door. I got to here, and I thought, 
I thought I seen you outside by the pool. I go outside, but you're not there. And then I come back in, and the chairs are like that. I was floored by this. He was genuinely terrified. And there's something additionally horrific when someone you view as the strong one suddenly becomes nervous and scared. For whatever reason, I snapped into rational mode and I set the chairs back down while saying, relax, we must have just missed the chairs being like this. I knew it wasn't the case. I'd stood at that table earlier to look out of the window and if the chairs were there, they would have blocked the view. I was in an awful situation where I was doing everything I could to convince my partner that this was not a haunted house. Whilst becoming equally convinced, it was the exact opposite. A few hours later and we'd both calmed down somewhat, but I couldn't help but keep thinking about what crime was committed here. I believe that later, the house found a way to show me. We got ready for bed that evening, but I just couldn't sleep. Keith seemed to have convinced himself that everything was okay, and he fell asleep almost instantly. But I kept staring at the ceiling. It felt... well, it felt like I was never alone. There was an intensity, a closeness, a feeling that something, maybe even me, could snap at any time. I really can't describe the feeling of utter volatileness that pervaded the walls. I started trying some breathing exercises that I'd previously had success with in order to fall asleep. Deep breath. One, two, three, four, five. And out. One, two, three. It was that sound again coming from the attic. I felt that unless I could explain the sound away, things were just going to spiral, especially mentally, and what was meant to be one of the happiest times of my life. So I quietly got out of bed and stood on the landing, and there it was, a hatch. A pull-down rope handle was looped around a hook to its side, I tiptoed downstairs and came back up with a broom, gently managing to knock the weighted end of the rope loose, causing it to swing and almost hit me in the face. The metal hinges creaked as I inch by inch pulled it open. The wooden folded-up ladder that was attached to the hood thankfully wasn't so noisy and unfurled easily to the landing floor. I looked up into the pitch-black rectangle above me, and felt my legs actually begin to quiver. I'd grabbed my phone as I left the bedroom, so hurriedly fumbled with it to activate the torch feature, and with that in my left hand, and my right gripping the side of the ladder, I slowly placed my weight on the first rung. I paused and listened out for any staring from Keith, but a light snoring came from the bedroom, telling me I was good to go. Cautiously, I began ascending the ladder, until my eyes breached the floor level of the attic. It was large and filled with boxes of varying sizes. I took another step up and managed to pivot my hips, stretching my hand up with the phone to illuminate the area as best I could. And then, from the back of the attic, 
I saw a pair of eyes looking back at me. I almost dropped the phone in panic, but then it hit me. The eyes, they didn't seem to move, as if they were painted even. I climbed higher still so my head was above the strewn boxes dotted around the floor, and the thing with the eyes came into full view. There, at the back of the attic against the wall, was a statue of the Virgin Mary, arms outstretched. Although usually an image associated with peace and love, in this setting, it just gave an ominous feeling. I felt strangely drawn to the statue and slowly walked around the boxes to get closer. There was something draped over each arm, lots of what appeared to be necklaces. The closer I got, the more they came into view. Rosary beads. I gently picked one off her right arm and ran it through my fingers. Why were these here? Who hid away all of these religious items? Then the weight of the cross on the one I held caught me by surprise and the rosary slipped from my hand, landing on the wooden floor. It was the exact sound that I'd heard from the bedroom. Picking it up, I had a quick look around on the floor, but there was nothing there. Surely if what I heard was the rosary dropping on the floor, there would be one on the floor. Unless, of course, someone, or something, had picked it back up and placed it back on the statue's arm. I suddenly felt the volatile feeling again. I didn't like it one bit. Flashes of anger seemed to surge through my mind. Anger aimed at Keith. But Keith had done absolutely nothing to make me feel this way, and I was genuinely becoming worried for my state of mind. As I made my way back to bed, I knew we had to leave this place before something happened, or even before I'd done something to Keith. I eventually went downstairs and dropped off to sleep, and that's when it happened. I had the most visual dream that I ever have had. In the dream, I was looking in the bathroom mirror, but my reflection wasn't me. It was a Mediterranean-looking woman, dark hair and tanned skin. She was beautiful. Or should I say, I was beautiful. I was brushing my hair in what seemed to be a trance, like I was deep in thought. I placed the brush down and sweep my hair back, and I placed my hands behind my neck and remove the rosary beads that I'm wearing. I go into the bedroom where there's a statue of the Virgin Mary, pride of place on sort of a plinth. I place the rosary on the fingers of the statue. I then slowly walk downstairs and out into the kitchen area. I pull one of the kitchen chairs out and stare out of the large kitchen window at the swimming pool. It's a lovely day and I'm staring at the still water. And then something slowly bobs into view. It's like hay on the water. And then I realise it's not hay. It's blonde hair. I don't panic, 
almost like I was expecting to see it. The hair bobs to the left, and the young female body the hair's attached to bobs into view, face down. I still don't move. I just stare. The girl must be about 12 years old, and she's quite clearly dead. Suddenly, running in from the side comes a man, mid-forties, a long handlebar moustache. He dives into the pool and lifts the body out of the pool. At this, I raise from my chair. I know he's wasting his time. I know she's been there hours. He starts breathing into the child's mouth, slapping her cheeks, crying and shouting at her to wake up. I slowly and calmly walk up behind him as he's in this frantic state. I look down, and I'm holding a kitchen knife in my hand. I lower myself behind him, so I'm inches from the back of his head. And then, I wake up, fighting for breath. Keith jumped awake next to me. What's wrong, love? Are you okay? We need to get out of here, I replied, jumping out of bed and throwing on a pair of jeans and a jumper. Keith followed suit, unaware of what was going on, and quickly got dressed, all the while trying to calm me down and find out what spooked me so much. Sit down, love, take a breath, let's talk, he said, walking around and holding my arms. Reluctantly, I sit, but I repeat to him, We're getting out of this house, Keith. Let me get you some water, he said, still trying to calm the situation. I watch as he heads out of the room towards the stairs, and something in me, and I know it's something to do with the woman from the dream, tells me to run and push Keith down the stairs. I stand up, and with each passing second I knew this is wrong, terribly wrong. I didn't want to do it. I was literally watching my legs move without my command. My arms were stretched out in front of me, without any consciousness from me. And then I begin shrieking. Keith, hearing my scream, spins around and manages to tackle me to the ground. Instantly, whatever had took control of me left, and I just began crying uncontrollably, in complete shock at whatever had just happened. We left that same day, and neither of us really ever spoke of the incident again, not to friends, nor family. Shortly after we spent a week in the Cotswolds, and to anyone we've met since, if they've asked, we say that's where we spent our honeymoon. I'll never be able to explain what happened in that villa, but I do know that after a childhood of believing that the spirit world can't harm you, my adulthood has taught me something very, very different. A huge thank you to Amy for sharing her true paranormal experience with me and also with you. There are certain things within that story that stand out and send a chill right down my spine. There's one thing that I've always thought about mediums or people who can see the spirit world, and that's surely it can't always be a bed of roses. 
It can't always be somebody sending you love from the other side. And Amy's experience there seems to validate that genuine fear that I have. I, like many of you, I'm sure, have wondered what it would be like to be able to be clairvoyant or clairaudient. But if this story's anything to go by, it certainly sticks true to the mantra, be careful what you wish for. Because if the ability to see the dead leads to situations like what Amy experienced on her honeymoon, then I'm kind of fine not being able to see the dead, thank you. So that brings us to the end of Episode 2, Season 5 of The Dark Paranormal. Don't forget, if you have a true paranormal experience that you'd wish to share, email me at thedarkparanormal at hotmail.com. And of course, if you like The Dark Paranormal and wish to support the show and gain extra shows each and every week, simply go over to patreon.com forward slash thedarkparanormal. But for now, remember, when discussing the paranormal, try and leave your disbelief at the door. And I'll catch you next time on The Dark Paranormal.